this is where I am in my life, Danielle, is that like <laughs> I have these awesome uh, epiphanies, at least they seem so at the moment, and then two minutes later, a squirrel goes by and it's gone. <laughs> Welcome to Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, design, and experience. I'm your host, Justin Dobb, and on this episode, we talk about space and how the way we design that space can affect the space between your ears. Stay tuned. Okay, welcome. Thank you. So, uh, today I have in the fabulous podcast studio, Danielle Galmore. So, Danielle, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and, and um, uh, the, about your consulting business? Well, thank you. Um, yeah, so I have Cuesta Consulting, and I named it Cuesta um, because companies are typically on a path looking for uh, innovation or growth. And so I really get energized by helping people actually achieve that growth. And so I started Cuesta um, about a little over a little over a year ago. And I work with different clients. Um, my specialty tends to be around using space and really understanding the people, um, whether they're customers, employees, students, and um, I also have a certification in experience design. So by taking and understanding uh, the, the, the users of the space, how can you actually activate the space and use it as a tool to help you achieve whatever it is you're looking for? So if it's more behaviors around collaboration, innovation, sharing ideas, how can the space actually be a catalyst for a tool? So that's not all I do, but that's definitely the area um, that I specialize. Yeah, uh, I think people would really be interested in hearing a little bit about a past engagement that you had working with Steelcase. Um, and I know they're, you know, they're bought into the whole design thinking process and how you used kind of that design thinking to uh, really re-envision how people use space to, to co-work and co-ideate. Sure, yeah, that was um, uh, probably the, the best thing I've ever done in my career. <laughs> Um, I uh, was leading space as a service for Steelcase, which was a growth domain that uh, they were very interested in. And um, Workspring was the brand that was the, is the brand that's the most known. Um, we actually had two locations in Chicago. One started out; it was five thousand square feet, really just testing user desirability, um, looking for you know when people come off site, can we actually help them to to do work better and did they feel like they were actually doing work better? So it was an experiential, everything was thought out from, you know, when somebody's coming off the elevator, how many steps do you take before you greet them and everything to do with the process. Then once the user desirability was um, was affirmed, we then moved to a larger uh, location and we brought in a couple of the business models that we had been um, playing around with. One was co-working and it was more the corporate co-working um, versus startup. Right. And then um, secondarily, we also, um, there was a really great project called Grid 70, and Grid 70 still exists. It's in Grand Rapids. And the idea behind that was to have five non-compete companies have their innovation or strategy teams all co-locate. And then through sharing frameworks and methodologies and ideas, because they were uh, non-compete, all of that sharing could happen. And then the idea was to raise the intellectual capital of the the people on those teams and then therefore those companies. That was probably one of the coolest things. So yeah. um, um, in Monroe, when we uh, opened the new work spring, we brought in project team space, corporate co-working, and then of course it was the more the innovation offsite um, learning, which was the biggest part of that business. So what structurally was different about, say, the, the work spring uh, space on, on Monroe than 
a traditional just open office environment or a traditional office environment with meeting space? I would say what we did is is truly went through um, both a, a design thinking but layered in a lot of experiential design. So we looked at every single part of the process of, of what people go through when they get together as a team. And then what we did is we created a mass customized back end. So we took all the elements that were work spring. So from food and beverage to staff to technology to sound and then repackage them depending on what every client needed. So we would do what we called stage the day tours and we would have people come in and we would talk to them about what it was they were trying to achieve and ask questions around, you know, does the team know each other? Would, would, would they benefit from maybe going out and doing a scavenger hunt around town or doing some sort of energizers to get to know each other a little bit better before you embarked on, on this type of work? And then, you know, et cetera. And then through that, like we'd even think about seating charts, like who do you seat where around the table? And and we would really help them stage the day for maximum impact. So you could probably make those skills fungible into a wedding planning business. Yeah, we <laughs> used to always say that every great event is it just mimics a birthday. <laughs> when you are consulting with companies now about experience design, what what are the top three challenges you see most companies facing? And and also, kind of how do they get to the understanding that they need experienced design help? Yeah, I think one of the hardest parts to continue going down a path of saying, I really want to do something around the experience is figuring out what the metrics and the measures are to prove that actually spending the time on it is worthwhile. And companies are getting much better at that. Um, but for a long time, it was just kind of this inherent, you know, heart versus mind of saying, oh, we, we you know, but now with attraction and retention being such a big deal, um, the the whole reinvention of what's happening with retail around you know the digital experience plus the physical experience and how those things come together, people are really starting to step back and say, we really need to understand what the customer is looking for, what the employee is looking for, the student, and and how do we actually think about all of the steps of that experience that they're going through? You know, so we use a lot of the customer journey mapping from engage to enter to um, extend, uh, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Um, in order to really be able to kind of pull that apart because oftentimes people focus on maybe one part of that, like like the engage, but are not really looking at what happens, especially at like uh, exit or extend, what happens 48 hours after the, that time that that client or um, that customer came into your space. So as you've been working with companies, how much do most companies really focus on, you know, innovation through experience design, just anecdotally? I'd still say it's a lower percentage. I think innovation for innovation's sake, especially, um, you know, when I talk to, to prospective clients now, a lot of it is still around, you know, we're working in, in, in this industry and we want to expand into this industry. Or we have, um, you know, we do a lot in corporate America, but now we actually want to get into healthcare and, and things like that less around the people, more around driven by the fact that I have a product that I think can be expanded into other markets. Mm -hmm. And so the innovation tends to come you know, from that perspective, or uh, it could be product focused, right? Um, with with you know the history at Steelcase, there's, there's a lot of product ma and manufacturing and understanding all of those types of things. A lot of that distribution comes through distribution channels. So it's less around... Um, you know, it's either a new product or it's a new distribution channel. Less of it is around really understanding and saying, oh, we're going to do something different and get more share of wallet and, and things like that from the existing customers we have by going through 
some sort of innovation in terms of what our experience is? So innovation is a pretty broad term. You can innovate around a product or a service design or an experience. Um, What are some of the kind of cognitive frameworks that you bring to the table when you want to help a company really frame up what they should be focusing on? Uh, I use the stages of design thinking quite a bit. Um, So starting out with, um, you know, I've been trained in in IDOs um, and Steelcase evolved that into into their own. Um, I use that quite a bit. I find the business model canvas, which again, has a few tweaks to it, but I find that to be one of the most comprehensive and best outcomes when I work with a client. Um, A lot of the the lean startup kind of methodologies get baked into, into a lot of what those are. And then, you know, through Pine and Gilmore and the certification we have there, there is a whole toolkit um, that that helps you to think about everything from the experience. So one that's the most easy for people to do, and anybody can do this today, is just to think about the five senses. So when you walk into a place, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you, you know? Um, and, and so there's a lot of frameworks and stuff that are used. So I, I actually just, you know, I have kind of a... Um, laundry list and and as we're sitting down and and working uh, with anybody based on what their particular need is we kind of go through and figure out what are maybe the right frameworks and the right path and and things to be able to go through there but at the at the center of everything really is is the design thinking yeah we talk about design thinking here we do we do it actually much like you do do. and um but i think it's really helpful uh uh for people to you know get the synopsis so could you just walk through the you know the basic steps of design thinking and what the purpose of those are now you don't have to get into all the details obviously of all the things that go into it but just kind of you know what audio brought to the table sure yeah and and that was that was really great i mean because steel case and, and ideal were so tied together you know, you know even um financially at some point um, that really became the center of the culture. And, and that, again, that was just a wonderful experience to, to be part of all of that uh, and, and just to, to think that way. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it, um, I'd say the first thing, there, there's a set of mindsets um, that really need to come into play around um, thinking about how you're actually going to use the process because the process really is around taking creativity and then putting a system behind it so that, uh, you can actually carry it out and go through all the steps in the process. And so there, there's some mindset things around um, just, you know, clarity and, and, and different things that you bring to the table. But then the first step is, is empathy. And that's really um, putting on glasses that allow you to see <laughs> through your customer's eyes yeah. and be able to experience things the, the way that, that, they, that, that they do and really get deep into understanding and putting all your bias away. The second is is defining. So define what is your point of view, right? So you 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 have these set of questions and these things that you've learned through whatever methods you used um, in order to be more empathetic, whether it was interviews or um, observation and or just any yeah. of the different things. Then um, when, once you have your point of view and say, I think this is the biggest problem. And one of the things we did at Steelcase, which was really great, was um, we actually talked in terms of tensions. So yeah. if I really want to do this, but that really helped us to kind of clarify and, yeah. and figure out which problems were the biggest problems that should be solved. Once you do that, then you go into ideation um, and come up with all the ideas that you can possibly think of of, of how this problem might be solved. Um, this is an area where I think people shortchange. Um, 
simply because a lot of the ideas that come out are what I would consider iterative ideas and not necessarily breakthrough. Everybody right. wants to go in for breakthrough, um, <laughs> but but oftentimes, you know, because of of cost or pressures of the team or timing and all those types of stuff, you, you and, tend and to, it's easier. It, it yeah, it it truly is easier. <laughs> um, and then part of that, which they don't necessarily spell out as as, but part of that is then synthesis. Um, that with go, hand in hand with ideation is the synthesis. Um, and then after that, then is prototyping, um, and that's you know as you know that's that's an area <laughs> I spent yeah. a lot of time. Yeah. Um, you know I actually ran in market prototypes, and you and I have done speaking on you know high fidelity, low fidelity, medium fidelity prototyping right. and stuff together. So uh, prototyping, and then um, and the prototyping is really important. It should happen at all stages constantly because by actually doing things with your hands, you're engaging your brain, you're learning things as you go. Um, and then they become critical tools to to bring back to the users in order to get feedback. And, and oftentimes you get much deeper insights and information from them because now you've put something in front of them that they can touch and you might learn something that you never even heard the first time through all the other interviews and things you've done. And then once you have a prototype, um, uh, you know, then hand in hand with that is then the testing. Um, and the other thing that I think um, that people sometimes forget, they want to test the world. Yeah. And yes. I do think that there's a structure to how you test. You have to really define what's the biggest risk first and then validate that one and then and then move your way down. Like it's, you know, if, if people are not going to buy something, then it, it makes no sense whether they like blue or pink, or pink better, right? Right. It's all subjective. You know, what's interesting is that Mignani started off in a kind of as a classical graphic design and mm-hmm. creative house. And... You know, I've actually been here forever, and uh, I watched as the kind of graphic design process transferred from basically from from traditional kind of hand work through you know computer kind of augmented hand work all the way through everything's done on the box. And what I saw was that people were prototyping less. You could go so quickly from an idea in your head to what appears to be a finished product that people weren't making um, like paper mock-ups of, of materials or you know designs weren't sketched on paper with a pencil. And um, I find actually I'm, I'm starting to see it going back that way. And it's kind of interesting as we've really kind of infused more of the uh, structure of design thinking back into the work we do there's a lot more paper and post-it notes, right? And things like this that, that were gone for decades, I think, within the, within the industry. Yeah. And uh, you know, ultimately, right, because you're solving more human problems than technical design problems, which ultimately leads to a better product. For sure. You know, and we, you know, I mentioned those mindsets at the beginning. One of them is it tells you, you know, design thinking shouldn't really be called design thinking, maybe. It should be design doing. And, right. and it's that's the part that where you really do you learn you get your hands dirty you're you know you're you're out there's been some um like i love some of the stuff that happens on the digital side though of uh, around technology being able to follow a user's ipath and and, yeah. and all those kinds of things which i think have been you know really breakthrough in terms of the user experience from the digital perspective um but but i think you're right when the teams are actually working through the stuff sometimes it's just it, it's better and and immerse yourself in into that directly for for the customer and and start to go back to the hand tools like you said yeah you know it will be interesting to see um you know right now you know ethnography requires that you go observe someone uh i have to assume that as we're getting more and more into like 
augmented reality technology and virtual reality technology that that we're going to hand you know uh, a head-mounted camera to someone in a set of glasses or something and then they'll just record their day we won't be there and they'll be much more natural right and we'll just go put ourselves quote in their head literally and re-experience that that moment that day as they're you know interacting with maybe a digital experience or a physical experience um that 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 ethnography is going to be done you know remotely at this point yeah i think i think you're probably right and you know the other thing i think we should possibly do a little bit more of is figure out a way to put ourselves into a self-immersion and i know you, you never can completely it's, mimic yeah, what somebody's you can't doing, leave your right? own body so much but, well but but um you know if if your user is entering into a new store for the first time whatever what right. is your experience of, of going through that i i do think we tend to stand behind the screen and and observe more than we actually maybe put ourselves out there to actually go through what what does it feel like what what am i smelling what am i seeing um you know how am i reacting to you know this stimulus or that touch yeah. point and, and things like that I, I i don't know if we spend enough time doing that i think we spend time again kind of observing versus immersing yeah i think the best analogy might be that moment you you know you're at your house on a weekend and someone calls you and says hey i'm two minutes away i'm coming over <laughs> suddenly your experience of your own house is very different than it was a moment ago <laughs> exactly because you're all of a sudden seeing it through someone else's eyes like oh i probably should pick up those socks or you know whatever that's, horrible other uncomfortable thing is laying around and yeah, that's perfect analogy um but it does take training right so this is i think this is an important thing you brought up about the design doing is that all of these things are about the discipline of making yourself go through the process. I'm a little amused sometimes when you look up the definition of design thinking and it's very kind of self-reflexive. It's about thinking like a designer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally not helpful for most people who don't know what that means. But And it means going through this process and really, again, getting outside yourself. And I think that's something that's lost on a lot of people is that to be a real designer, you are actually putting yourself, as you mentioned, into someone else's shoes the entire time. Exactly. When you look to the future, how do you think this trend towards design thinking will play out in larger companies, medium-sized companies, or smaller companies? Well, already you see it being very mainstream, and I do see that the the definition, um, you know, if you go up and look at, say, experience design or, or user design, um, it starts to have silos now. Like there's there, there's a ton of stuff you can find just around the digital experience of, of right called user design. A lot of what pops up when you do a Google search or any other search engine, it is is very much around what's the digital experience that somebody has. So. It's, it's going mainstream, but I think it's also kind of <laughs> moving into these silos. Um, I don't... Uh, it, I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer yeah, because the best <laughs> way to be wrong is to predict the future. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Like I said, I, I, there's, there's a lot more conversation and stuff about it, but I think people are kind of tweaking it to mean something specific for them. So is that good? I don't know. <laughs> we'll all find out together as we go into the future. Well, one of the things we were talking about early was um, uh, one of the the challenges of, of innovation, and so especially on a on a larger company front, um, when companies are are doing innovation, the main 
crux of the company, uh, which takes most of the mind share, becomes becomes really hard to fight through if you're doing innovation within a, within a larger company. I do feel like smaller companies and medium sized companies tend to get everybody kind of pulling in the same direction because there's just you know less people and less moving parts and less maybe complexity at that moment in time. Right. But with a larger company, it's um, you know you might often get 15 minutes once a quarter to actually go in and talk about whatever this new invention and and things are and so. How you storytell, yeah. and and how you you know logically put together you know what's going on to really be able to deliver something to pull some mind share, and get some momentum and and some excitement around some of the innovations and things that are going, um, I think is a critical skill. And um, you know I, I know I, luckily I was I was able to a few of us on on our team were able to work with some people from McKinsey who are really really good at that. To um, to learn how to be able to go into you know the higher levels of a, of an organization and really be able to talk about some of the invention and innovation and, and the things that we were working on, um, which I greatly appreciate. So I, I do think that that's one of the things that potentially can get better, like that that design thinking and and going through the process steps to be able to help with the storytelling yeah. around what where the impact can be is going to be something we'll probably see be, just get better. Well, of course, that's what we've structured our entire process around, right? So we do our narrative-based innovation process because we are firm believers that storytelling is the uh, probably the most efficient way to even think through the process. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, doing like journey mapping for um, an experience. And we really try to infuse as much story into those as possible. Sometimes, you know, it depends on what you want to use this for. Um, but as you're really working through a story, it helps to expose like the holes, right? So you may have some assumptions that when you take a character and literally start to write the narrative of that character going through this process or this moment, uh, you know, it quickly bears out whether that thing you're describing you know, holds water, so to speak, whether the idea holds water and whether it's something you believe, right? We're really good as a species at calling BS when <laughs> we hear stories that just don't ring true. Um, and so bringing storytelling, at least we think, into all of these processes and most importantly, as you mentioned a minute ago, when you need to sell that idea and when you need to coalesce people around an idea, a story is really, um, we think the most important efficient way to do it because it's how we, you know, came uh, up as a culture, right? This is Correct. our first technology was storytelling. Exactly. Um, I don't know if you've heard this, but in the Amazon boardroom, right, you can't do a PowerPoint anymore. You have to tell a story. No, I wasn't aware. So they, they have like said, you know, no more bullets. You need to write a compelling narrative around why this concept or improvement or process or whatever you're bringing to the table makes sense, then you need to write a story of why, how someone would experience it or how the company will be different if they do things a new way. Oh, I love that. So it, it's 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 out there and, you know, um, I guess it falls into the uh, everything old is new again, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if storytelling ever went away, but no. yeah, somehow we did get enamored in PowerPoint. But yeah, and and just like that, technology was a solution, and and our position is technology is never a solution. Technology is a means to get to that emotional solution you've been been hunting for. If I'm charge of innovation at a company, I've got a lot of research, 
I know my customer. I've got personas built out. And I'm having trouble with my team trying to really stick the landing. How would you come in and help me really translate all of that research and insight into what is a true innovative product or or service change? Yeah, so um, it, currently I can lead or, or augment a team, um, just depending on where the team is and, and the structure of that. But um, kind of funny that you say that. That's, I think somewhere along the line, that's where I develop my career. Um, you know, there would be <laughs> huge piles of, of research and a lot of cool ideas and um, I've always been pretty good, you know, you look at StrengthsFinder, I'm a big fan of StrengthsFinder and, um, you know, Achiever, Arranger, Ideation, like the, those are some of my big strengths. And so taking that idea, but then seeing all the disparate parts and arranging them and putting them together and then figuring out how to prove them right. um, is, is really a, a place where I can, I can help support a team. Um, I love doing learning cycles, right? So we need to learn this. What are the three big hypotheses that we have out there? Put a plan together, learn them really quick, come back together as a team, figure out what the impact is, and then continue to move on. A lot of it is, is getting to the answers faster. Um, right, so you can you can swirl and, and and try a lot of things for a long period of time, but I, I really like structure um, because I'm an extremely results oriented person. Yeah. So I, I think that's where I can come in and, and help a team um, by by just putting a lot of that structure um, and and moving towards the results in again. Yeah. You know, using a lot of those tools and methods that we've been talking about. So you mentioned speed, and earlier you mentioned bringing lean innovation techniques to the table. Uh, tell me a little bit about why lean innovation is different, right? Or what is different about the process? And why do you think it, it leads to, you know, that kind of acceleration in the process? Yeah, so I'm sure a lot of people know, know this way better than myself. What I've used um, from that, uh, that, that I've kind of taken into heart and made part of my process is really figuring out what's the biggest, riskiest thing that we've got here. And then how do you quickly figure that out? So a lot of people call it about failing fast. And I just feel like it's, it's peeling back the onion, right? So it's not yeah. necessarily a failure. Every time you learn something, you learn something better and you can take another step forward or pivot, right? Move to the side, right? It's a, you hear that a lot in, in lean thinking. So to me, it's, it's that structure of, okay, what's the biggest risk? Get everybody moving in the same direction. Figure out exactly how you're going to go prove or disprove that. And then, and then move on from there. So it, again, it's putting the structure and the rigor to it um, with this kind of fail fast mentality. And failure is okay, right? The, the faster yeah. you can shut something down and say, there's no business there. There's, you know, we can't make money. It's, it, the customers don't like it. Whatever reason that is, the more you can start to deploy those resources towards something that can. So I, I read an article by McKinsey, you brought up McKinsey earlier, um, really talking about companies that focus on design and user experience design specifically can see you know returns 85% greater than their the market as a whole. Now, granted, that's one of those numbers that is 85% better. It doesn't mean that they're getting you know 85% more revenues or profits. It's, it's relative to the profits of the other company. But still, you know, I would take it as a, as a competitor. In the companies that you've worked with, have you seen a difference in the success of companies that seem to be more design-focused intrinsically than others that weren't? And you don't have to name any uh, specific companies, obviously. Yeah, I think the answer, the easy answer there is yes. Um, you know, one of the things I try and get on a dashboard whenever we're, we're working on something is 
the cost to acquire and then the cost to retain. Mm-hmm. And cost to retain is always higher margin. And so by looking at those numbers, you can start to see if you're actually moving in the right direction. So are you providing something that's a better experience? And, you know, we've all heard and read the stories, too, that even if a customer has a bad customer experience, the way you handle that can actually drive loyalty more than than other things. So understanding what happens at each of those points in times on a customer journey and figuring out how what is it that you can do to create that experience that drives the loyalty, that means that, that you just become their vendor of choice. Um, and because the cost to acquire a new customer is is exponentially more expensive than being able to, to retain that customer. Right. Um, and then the share wallet is another thing that we've always measured as well that I think you can tie back exactly to that experience as well. And then the more you continue to learn your customer, the more you can do add-on services or add-on products or, or different things like that to be able to continue that uh, share a wallet. But then also the customer feels very hurt. Like, I, I told you I needed this thing and you created it. This is awesome, right? And so I think that that there's metrics and measures that you can actually do that show that spending time on understanding your user and building on an experience actually has huge returns in the end. So here's your lightning round. If you could boil kind of uh, what companies should understand about innovation down to one word, what would it be? Oh, that wasn't the question I thought you were going to ask me. Um, I like to throw curveballs. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you not a one word answer. Sorry. I, I'm going to give you the word of evolution, but then I'm going to tell you why. Um, that, that you, you have officially succeeded in one word. <laughs> so good job. No, but you guess. Keep, keep going. going. Keep okay. going. <laughs> so I, I think innovation is is a little overused, and I think access to in, in, uh, information, the pace of change, all of that. You know, we talk about that. So what does that mean for innovation? And I, I personally think that we're going to stop talking about innovation, and we're going to talk about evolution, and that companies will start to change internally so that they're continually evolving towards something that's the future, versus thinking that there's going to be these big disruptive breakthroughs or you know, big new in- inventions and, and things like that, we're going to continue to evolve at a much faster pace. And you're going to start to see where maybe the larger corporations can now not be so disrupted by maybe some of the, the smaller businesses coming up. I think larger companies are going to learn this. Um, and that, that's that's my look into the future. All right. Well, thank you, Danielle. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. It's been wonderful to be here. Thank you. Brilliant is a production of Magnani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago, Illinois. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. To learn more about Magnani, visit magnani.com. 